stop whatever you're doing and listen to Josh and Daniel, Diary of the Madman, the ultimate Aussie podcast. Hello, welcome back to another edition of Diary of the Mad Men, the ultimate Ozzy Osbourne podcast, where Dan and I geek out about everything Ozzy and Ozzy related. I am Josh Crum, and with us as always is Dan Drago. How you doing, Josh? I'm doing good, man. I'm extremely excited about this awesome episode we have today. Earlier in the week, you and I had the pleasure of interviewing Mr. Adam Wakeman for the show. Personally, I don't think it could have went any better. How did you feel about it? Yeah, he was a gentleman i mean just an awesome guy very giving of his time he was real forthright and open and he tells some great stories this is a great interview our listeners are gonna love it yeah he loved to cut jokes a little bit every now and then yeah he's just so easy to talk to man he's like talking to someone that you've known for a long time very forthcoming with information he never really felt like he couldn't say anything he was just so easy to speak with, man, that really it wasn't so much of an interview as it was just a conversation because really I know my note, I had notes to use to discuss with questions and topics and really five minutes into the conversation that kind of went out the window because he just started chatting about other things. Yeah, that's a great point. It's like I've talked to him a ton of times and like he was a friend more than an interview. I totally agree with that. It was I didn't refer to any of my notes, to be honest. Yeah, I didn't either because it kind of became pointless when the conversation just wasn't leading in the same direction as the notes were. So, but yeah, it was awesome. I can't wait for you guys to hear that. But in the meantime, let's talk about a few other topics of note. First off, we thought it'd be fitting to lead off with our thoughts and prayers for Judas Priestley guitarist Richie Faulkner, who of course suffered an aortic aneurysm during the Louder Than Life Festival in Louisville, Kentucky about two weeks ago. He suffered it while on stage during the last song, Painkiller. He was able to finish the set actually before he went to the hospital where he underwent a 10 and a half hour surgical procedure that, that saved his life. That's crazy, right? Yeah, I mean, he's lucky to be alive. Make no mistake about it. I, I have a friend out here in Phoenix a couple of uh, months ago that died of this exact same thing. And this is scary. Richie was only 40 years old. He is only 40 years old. He's in great shape, had no heart issues, no cholesterol issues. And this just came on out of nowhere. This is becoming more common, this aortic aneurysm. And it's very, very scary. People need to make sure you can go to the doctor and get tested for it. It's a little bit of a different test than a heart test, but it's really eye-opening for me because, you know, I'm an exercise freak and I'm always worried about having a heart attack. Just it runs in my family and I've been seeing a lot of these aorta ruptures and it's just, it's really scary. He's lucky to be alive and we're so grateful. We wish our best to Richie Faulkner and his family. He just had a little girl, I believe. Yeah, absolutely, man. And just obviously, if you follow him on Twitter or Instagram, one of the most beloved people in metal these days, like everyone loves Richie. They're always tweeting at him and back and forth. He's always, you know, very upfront with everyone else. He tweets with fans a lot and talks to them a lot. I believe he's a Randy Rhodes freak. He definitely looks like Randy Rhodes on stage, the way he dresses and stuff. I think he gets his look from Randy a little bit. It, and it hits close to home for me also because Louder Than Life is a festival that I usually attend. Unfortunately, this year I didn't get to go. 
you know, it hits a little closer to home because it's in my home state of Kentucky. He went to the, the Jewish hospital in Louisville, Kentucky, and I can tell you they have an extremely good reputation here in the area. So I'm glad he was in good hands and they were able to, able to pull him through on something that, by all accounts, he, he probably shouldn't have survived. So that's excellent I mean, news. Listen to this. We've played countless shows to both of us. He had his aortic rupture during painkiller on stage and finished the song. I mean, I don't really think people can comprehend, Josh, what that took to finish that song while that was going on. I mean, his chest was filling up with blood while he was playing. I mean, this was scary shit. That's scary. Just yeah. imagine what was going through his mind. At the I time. know. <laughs> I mean, hats off to Richie, man. I mean, that that is true dedication. Uh, what a what a warrior. I, my only thought was is that it had to be just the complete rush of adrenaline from playing the show that, that that got him through the rest of that song i just can't even imagine what that would be like so anyway like you said hats off uh definitely our thoughts are with richie and his recovery and you know he needs to take all the time he needs because uh you know life is more important big time so we have big news this week we were the first to report this by the way and that's why you guys have to follow our social media pages we have a twitter facebook and instagram page but Ozzy announced this week on his show, he's got four guitar players lined up to be on his new record. That is Tony Iommi, Zach Wilde, Eric Clapton, and Jeff Beck. What do you think, Josh? Yeah, first and foremost, like you said, we put this out on social media 24 hours before Blabbermouth, 24 hours before Classic Rock Magazine, 24 hours before iHeartRadio, 24 hours before anybody. So like Dan said, give us a follow. We're Dan and I, listen, we track this shit like bird dogs all day <laughs> because it's our passion and it's what we love to, to do. So anything going on, we will very likely be the first to hear it. So definitely tune in for you know, the late breaking news. We were a little disappointed not to be the ones that got the acclaim for breaking that when Ozzy said that. on He said it on Ozzy's Boneyard, so technically they broke it, right? but it didn't break as news until we had put it out first, and then 24 hours later, he hit the news cycles. But anyway, we'd like to at some point start getting credit for those. So give us a follow on, on those websites and, and share those pages. That way we can start getting credit for them, because that was definitely massive news. And Dan, you're the one that heard it straight from Ozzy's mouth, and I don't have Sirius anymore. It's too repetitive. I let it go. You message me, and you're like, straight out of Ozzy's mouth, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, Tony Iommi, Zach Wilde. And my first thought was, Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton? I don't know what to think about that. On one hand, they're two of the greatest of all time, but on the other, most certainly not a heavy metal guitar style from those two. So I'm definitely curious to know, A, if they're on a song together, because I could see that they're very similar in a, in a style of you know play. Sure. And what kind of song that's going to be? Is it going to be a bluesy song where Ozzy might jam some harmonica and do like a heavy blues? Or is it going to be a ballad? You know, I'm, I'm definitely curious to know where those two may go. With Zach and Tony, we know what that's going to sound like relatively. But at the same time, it's awesome to have Zach and Tony on Ozzy's new album because it's Zach and Tony and Ozzy. I see what you're saying. I know we heard rumors. He, he wrote a song with Billy Morrison called Crack Cocaine a couple of years ago. That's supposed to be very, very blues centric. You know, I think Sharon, after Damaged Soul came out, uh, wanted him to do a straight up blues record. So there could be other material laying around that he could have dove into to, to bring onto his new record. I actually think Clapton and Jeff Beck can play on rockin' songs. I mean, they've done it before. I, I just think they're going to be 
ballads or I don't think it's going to be a straight up blues song. You know, Ozzy did say specifically on the, one of the songs Eric Clapton's on that he did play a smoking great guitar solo. And at first he was a little bit put off because one of the lyrics in the songs has the word Jesus in it, but they had worked it out together and Eric Clapton was fine with it. So I think it's going to be just a regular rock tune. I will tell you this. This is something I'm really excited about. Obviously, Andrew Watt is reading what people are saying about his work with Ozzy. So let's just break it down. The biggest complaint people had about Ordinary Man was that they did not like Andrew Watt's guitar playing, his solos particularly. I personally had no problem with it. I know you personally had no problem with it. But what does Andrew Watt do? He puts his ego in the seat. And I know he goes, well, fuck this. Look who I'm bringing in. Tony, Zach, Beck, Clapton. He like got just about the four biggest names in guitar playing history that you could bring in. And hats off to him as a wonderful producer here. And those are only the four that we know. There could be more. Yeah, we have a so, funny feeling Kirk Hammett's going to be on the record. Yeah, I mean, who knows? There could definitely be more. I mean, even on drums, we know there's two drummers. You have Chad Smith and you have Taylor Hawkins from Foo Fighters. So right. you're having multiple drummers. So it appears this is going to definitely be like, an, I hate to say it, an all-star collaboration. A lot of times I'm not a fan of that. Even for an Aussie album, I'm not sure if I'm a fan of it just yet. I definitely want to hear it first. But a lot of fans have forgotten that right before the end tour by Black Sabbath was announced, Sharon had made the comment through Epic Records, so clearly it was something to do with the record label, that they had big news and they couldn't wait to share it with the fans, but they couldn't just yet. And the rumor mill online at the time was that it was going to probably be an all-star blues record with Ozzy, you know, like a heavy a heavy metal blues record. That was definitely one of the, the most prominent rumors of what it could be. But there was definitely something in the works then that got shelved for sure when the end tour with Black Sabbath came up and they just went with that and kind of dropped all of that. And it's never been revisited. So it makes you wonder if some of this could be from – I definitely think they wrote all new songs with Andrew Watt. I don't know that Agreed. I feel like it could be old material laying around like crack cocaine. Those songs are, are definitely out there. If he's going to put crack cocaine out there as a track that was written with Billy Morrison and Steve Stevens – I think Steve Stevens and Billy Morrison would have more likely been on the album than Jeff Beck and, and Eric Clapton. Right. But who knows? I mean, that's what's, that's the fun part of this section of the release, you know, the pre-release when really you don't have any information and you're just glomming onto nuggets and trying to, in your head, imagine what they could be. And, you know, this is as fun a part of it as any, in my opinion, because I love the speculation and I love the, you know, the the hunt for, for nuggets of, of gold and truth they, to find out what the album might be about. It's the most exciting part of all of it. Here's the cool thing, though. I mean, with Elton John being on his last record, now we got Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck. These are just great choices because they're really Ozzy's peers, right? When you get Slash on, you get Zach. Obviously, Tony's also one of Ozzy's peers, but I think Ozzy prefers that in a weird way. It's people that grew up around his area, his age, throwback guys and i think ozzy can relate to that and i think that's a really really cool thing i would have guessed this is strictly speculation that andrew watt asked him who do you want to play on your record and he was like jeff beck eric clapton and andrew watt made that happen i can see that i can see that and actually coming up in the interview you'll hear some interesting tidbits about eric clapton from adam wakeman which i found very interesting that he was so forthcoming with about eric and some disappointments and then some uh jubilation that he's had with eric clapton in the past that was kind of interesting but yeah 
I mean, it could be, but like you said, I also agree that I think Andrew was reading reading the dirt sheets. He's reading, you know, Blabbermouth and Classic Rock Magazine to see what fans thought. And clearly the one thing that was on repeat through all the threads about Ordinary Mania is we wish Zach Wilde was on it. No question. So, yeah. You know, the interesting thing is Jeff Beck replaced Eric Clapton in the Yardbirds. So I think that's kind of an irony here, right? Yeah. I got a feeling there's more. I, I don't think that's it. I really don't. I think we are looking into what could be a very collaborative effort of just different players from, you know, from all eras. You know, I always thought Ozzy should have done a record. And I mean, writing with the artist, not just have the artist on. But you know how like Slash, his first solo album, Ozzy performs on. He has a different singer for every song, right? Mm-hmm. Tony Iommi did that also. Yeah, Tony Iommi did that, right? Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. I think Ozzy should have done that with guitar players. Wrote a song with Dave Mustaine. Wrote a song with James Hetfield. Wrote a song with Slash. Wrote a song with Zach. Wrote a song with Tony. And, and I think that would have been just phenomenal. It would have been huge if he would have picked the right guitar players. And I, I always thought in the back of my head that was something it would have really been cool for him to do as a solo artist. It's something maybe we can maybe pursue later in another episode where we pick our, our guitar players we'd want him to, to partner with. It'd be kind of fun. But I always thought he should have done something like that. I got to say, you know, I've never really thought about that before. But man, that would be slamming, wouldn't it? Because, you know, every one of those guitar players are going to want to put their best foot forward on an Aussie record. That is all, all his records are guitar centric anyway. And they're all going to want to outdo the other guy. And that would be completely slamming. Yeah. And every song would have a different flavor, right? Imagine Ozzy writing a song with Hetfield. Ozzy writing a song with Jerry Cantrell. I mean, it would be fucking incredible if he would have ever went that direction. And I'm kind of surprised that Sharon never thought of that, to be honest. You know, and for some reason, as far as special guests on this new album, I don't know why. But, you know, we've talked about Kirk Hammett is the name that we think was with the the connection with Rob Trujillo and stuff. And I mean, and obviously Ozzy knows all these guys, but I mean, Rob and, and Kirk, like we said before, they surf together and shit. So they're clearly connected. But, you know, for some reason, I really, I'm keeping an eye on, you mentioned him a minute ago, Dave Mustaine, for some reason, I, they were going to tour together before Ozzy had to cancel the shows. And then of course, pre-pandemic. And then Dave finds out he has cancer on Dave's, you know, 60th birthday show. They had a live video, not live, but a pre-recorded video on the screen where all these people were telling Dave happy birthday. And lo and behold, there's Ozzy and Sharon. Uh, I could really see the potential for a Dave Mustaine cameo on this album. That would be fucking epic in my world because I'm a massive Megadeth fan. And that would be amazing. Obviously, he's a huge Ozzy fan. He covered Paranoid. He covered Never Say Die, which is fantastic. Yeah, I think that's a great choice. Uh, like I said, if Ozzy was going to do this right, I'd have I'd rather have him write with the artist. I'd rather have him write with Dave Mustaine. But if Dave Mustaine brought his lead guitar playing skills to this record, that would be fantastic. Absolutely. And with both having the health issues that they've had over the past few years, you know, I see there's a connection there also that maybe they'd be keeping up with each other and texting. You know, Ozzy said, you know, when you when you're down and out, you find out who your true friends are. And he named Tony Iommi. He named Jonathan Davis of Corn. Maybe maybe him and Dave's been reaching out to each other since both are going through hard times right now with, with their health concerns and stuff. So I, I could definitely see that being a possibility also. Right. Sharon could have called him to talk him through the cancer battle since she went through it herself. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. So also this week, we finally have the release of the Black Sabbath Technical Ecstasy box set, Super Deluxe box set. 
Dan, we've had about a week now to peruse that and listen to it and, and glom it over. I still haven't been able to actually read the booklet that comes in there yet. I need to do that. After checking it out, what do you think? It's amazing. You know, I know everybody rips on Technical Ecstasy, and quite frankly, it's probably my least liked album of the first eight classic Sabbath records. But God, the outtake disc of this, I can listen to all day. It's just great to hear the boys basically just playing it live. You know, most of the song Ozzy has the lyrics done, or Geezer has the lyrics done that Ozzy's singing. And there are two tracks, She's Gone and Rock and Roll Doctor, where Ozzy's basically writing the melody and kind of riffing off the top of his head the lyrics. And I love when he does that because you're getting those true, unadulterated live takes of Ozzy writing the melody. I love that. She's Gone off of the outtakes is my favorite, only because it's really much more like a band than an orchestration. I love the original, but... You know, it's really cool to hear, to hear Bill on this track, to hear Ozzy's vocals with it. It's more guitar-driven with what Tony's playing. The bass is very, very prominent on this. Overall, that's my favorite disc is the outtakes. The Stephen Wilson mix is very cool. He does an amazing job of separation. You know, I think, and I know you're going to touch on this, Geezer and Bill clearly get the big bump on this remaster. What do you think? Agreed. Uh, I think I'd even talk to you about that. I, I think that was a direct message I sent to you. I said the beneficiaries of this remaster was was Geezer and Bill. Like they sound, they come out, they come so much more forward than they were in the original takes of these songs. And uh, and I'm with you. The alternate takes CD is definitely the the highlight of the whole set. Hearing Ozzy on a much more clean tone, and like you and I discussed privately, single like those vocals aren't doubled. The singled vocals singing those songs clearly in a in a I don't want to say in an infancy period, but definitely in a growing period where the you know the songs weren't completely finished yet. And it's just, it's so gorgeous to hear those versions because and also they're full takes. They're not half takes. Good the point. Um, the volume four super deluxe had a whole lot of half takes and then they'd restarts and like you know fault and all that. And then that's cool. I'm totally glad to have those. That's fun, you know, for fans. But Hearing full takes is truly amazing. You know, you can put that on in your car and and listen to those the same as you would any of the other tracks. And like you said, she's gone with drums. You know, that was definitely an interesting take. But all in all, this the overall set is just gorgeous. And the actual just remaster of the original, it sounds fucking great. I think it, it is all. It, to be honest, I think all of these super deluxe editions, they've pretty much knocked them out of the park on the remasters. The remasters on all of these sound truly, really, really good. I think our only complaint will probably be, and I know you're going to agree with me, Sabotage didn't have any outtakes. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going. Exactly. And I think with having this box set makes me realize even more what's missing on Sabotage. Yeah, I, I would say that's, that was a huge disappointment for me that Sabotage did not have outtakes, being my favorite Sabbath record. And those songs, Ozzy just smokes them. And I would have loved to have heard early takes of those, uh, some of those vocal takes. 100%. Um, I, will, I will say the live disc, I'm not as big a fan. Ozzy sounds pretty shot on this live uh, disc. I think it's the Pittsburgh show, if I'm not mistaken, the bootleg that's been Civic, going around. Yeah, Civic Auditorium, Pittsburgh, 76. Yeah, yeah so yeah. I, I like the Sabotage live set much better. But overall, the other song I forgot to mention is the the outtake of all moving parts stand still with Ozzy. I assume Ozzy playing the harmonica. It's got a total outro. Ozzy singing on the, uh, you know, having some fun with the vocals. What a great take. All moving parts stand still took the biggest boost. Yeah. I mentioned it might've been last week or the week before how Hellraiser with 
uh, you know, with Lemmy went from middle lower of the pack to middle upper of the pack, just having the Lemmy version now. I think all moving parts stand still did that on this whole release, the Super Deluxe Edition release. It's kind of the standout track overall over all the albums. It yeah. went to me from middle lower of the pack to middle upper of the pack. It, it just kind of changed Agreed. its positioning for me. There, there's something about these remixes and remasters and live that has given me a new appreciation for that song that maybe I didn't have before. And it, it definitely is a standout. One thing I want to say real quick about before we move on about the live album. I'm not going to agree that Ozzy's voice is shot, but I do agree with you. It's at that phase where they started tuning back up again and yeah. he's really having he's to push struggling. it to get up there. And and we've talked about that many times over the past few episodes. If you don't know what we're talking about, please check out our archives. We would appreciate that. He's definitely trying to hit those notes tuned up. But that said, you know, some of those Gypsy Live, it's, it's such a cool tune for me and to have a live, a, a proper live version of that. But, you know, I will say, of all the live albums they've done on these super deluxe editions, this is the one I don't feel like they really cleaned it at all. It really doesn't sound, I don't know if it sounds hardly any better than the bootleg. It's really right there with it. There's even some like rough noises in the background that could be even like tape glitches or something that you can hear from time to time. I, it just kind of, I don't know. I feel like they didn't put a whole lot of time into cleaning that one up. But at the same time, I don't want to seem uh, unappreciative because I'd rather them go ahead and put it in there than not. Yeah, well, I think I think you're bringing up a good point here because I've always preferred the Lund Sweden technical ecstasy bootleg, which I listen to much more. And I don't understand why they didn't clean that one up. It's a better performance. They could have at least taken Rock and Roll Doctor from that show, if anything. You know, maybe take All Moving Parts Stand Still because I don't know if that's played at the Lund Sweden show. I'd have to check. But I think the sound overall is better at the Lund Sweden show, and I'm shocked they didn't use that one. And I have one from San Jose that sounds bad, that I think is better. So... I feel like it's a soundboard. It may be an audience recording. I don't know. I feel like it's a soundboard off the top of my head, but it sounds really good. So um, I don't know. A few of the ones in the Paranoid box set didn't have that great a sound either. And, you know, being recorded, you know, in 1969 or whenever they were, they were really old. And, you know, some of those weren't as great either. And, and I do understand that it's just, look, it's a bonus. It's, it's something that's for the diehard fans. And I'm definitely appreciative of them. And, you know, we still love them. We're just, we're totally nitpicking when we say that, but uh, all in all, the, the technical ecstasy box set definitely worth its, its weight in gold. It's a, uh, a solid release. Now let's knock on wood and hope we get one for Never Say Die. Oh, that would be amazing. Amazing. All right. Well, next up is our wonderful interview with Adam Wakeman. And you guys are going to really, really enjoy this. What do you got, Josh? That's it, man. I can't wait for everyone to listen to Adam. He's such an interesting character. And when we resume next week, we may want to go back and discuss some of the things Adam talked about on this interview. We just don't want to spoil them for you before you've heard him say it out of his own mouth. So maybe next week we can continue the conversation about some of the things we talked about with him on the interview. All right, guys. So without further ado, here we go. Today, Dan and I are extremely excited to welcome with us current Ozzy Osbourne keyboard player, Adam Waitman to the show. How's it going, Adam? Oh, I'm very well. I love that current keyboard player. That's like, as if as if you were going to say that uh, I've been fired a couple of days ago or something. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Not yet. We've not heard any rumors yet, so that's good. No, do do let me know though if you hear anything before me. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Will. He might let something slip on one of his shows, like he just did last week. <laughs> oh, what did, what did he say? That um, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, Tony Iommi, and um, Zach Wild is going to be on his new record. Oh, fantastic. Well, you, yeah. see, you know more than I do. <laughs> That's great. 
super excited about that, to be honest. I mean, Eric Clapton, that just blew my mind when he said that. Oh, do you know what? I saw Eric Clapton year in 2003 at um, Madison Square Gardens. And I, I have to say, I'm a big Eric Clapton fan. And I was, unfortunately, a bit disappointed. Um, he, he really didn't like, look like he wanted to be there. And then I, I just had to see him again. So I saw him about five or six years ago. Um, at the Albert Hall, and he didn't disappoint at all. He was absolutely phenomenal. So I was, I was so glad I got that kind of another trip to go and see him because I, I would have hated to have only seen him once and him not really look that bothered. Yeah, that would have been a disappointment for sure. And I'm sure that just happens. I mean, we've played millions of gigs. I'm sure you've played way more than Josh and I have. And just some some days are like that, right? You're just not so feeling the, it or just not feeling yeah, the crowd or something. That's the thing. You, could, you know, he might have been ill or, you know, whatever. You don't, you don't know what's going on. But I was just so gutted because, I've you know, I've, we wanted to see him since I was a kid. And it was just one of those moments where I, I left kind of a bit disappointed. So right. I was so pleased to see him at um, the Albert Hall. He was fantastic. So yeah. being, a, being a, let me just get this in real quick, Josh, being yeah, a gigantic did. Beatles fan, you know, the fact that he played on While My Guitar Gently Weeps, and now he's playing with my other favorite musician, Ozzy, that just, it's just kismet for me. It's perfect. It's just <laughs> awesome. That's good. I guess the next question is, is Adam Wakeman going to be on the new Ozzy Osbourne album? Oh, well, I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's never that, um, it's never that easy with being in England for starters. I think if, um, you know, if I was in Los Angeles, there's probably more chance of, of getting involved with stuff like that. But the thing about Ozzy that's always been key with his records is he, he tends to work with different producers each time and producers tend to come along with their own musicians and have their own ideas, which is kind of how he's managed, I think, to make such consistently good albums because he hasn't stuck with the same kind of, you know, formula. And... Um, you know, and that's great. I mean, you know, I don't think any of us expect to be on any of the albums. It's always nice if we are, but we, you know, I'm just glad to be there when he needs me to, to do whatever he needs me to do. I mean, I'd mow his grass if he wanted me to. <laughs> wow. That's an excellent awesome. answer. That's <laughs> awesome. Well, we'll get to some Aussie stuff later, but before we do, we want to let the, you know, the listeners know that you have a new album coming out titled A Handful of Memories, and it comes out November the 12th. This is your first modern classical piano album since Tapestries in 1996. What made you think that now was the time that you wanted to do a modern classical piano album? Well, I was hoping that people might have forgotten that I've done the first one and, and made such, such a hash of it, and they might forgive me for doing another one. Um, <laughs> I don't, you know, I did that album, Tapestries, and I did another one um, called Romance of the Victorian Age, which was, they were both done with my, my dad, Rick, um, and we kind of wrote six tracks each, and it was very much just modern classical um, piano pieces, and uh, I really enjoyed doing it. I was originally a classical pianist, so that's kind of where, where I kind of came from, um, the classical kind of upbringing, and um, thought about doing one before, but just other things got in the way, if that, if that makes any sense. It's like, you, you know, 20 years can pass quite quickly in any kind of industry and um, in the music industry even quicker. It's like you go, you know, an Aussie tour might take take up 18 months of your life. And then when you get back, you've got, you know, a family to reacquaint with and, um, you know, other recording projects and everything else just can't, I don't know, it just, it, it was always at the back of kind of my list of priorities. But once we had the car, you know, the whole, um, lockdown situation it kind of gave gave me a bit more time to think about you know doing stuff that I wanted to actually do and without touring so much I mean you know we haven't played any shows for near, near enough a couple of years so it it's given me a lot of time to focus on sort of writing and and you know doing the things I want to do 
it would be nice to say other things got in the way for me and Dan if those other things were Black Sabbath and Ozzy Osbourne. That's that's pretty fucking awesome right there. <laughs> so Adam, how different of a mindset do you have writing classical music and classical pieces for a handful of memories versus more of the rock stuff you've written in the past? I, d- I mean, I think that it's quite obvious when when I sit and write something, whether it's going to be you know geared towards a certain style of music. So if I'm writing t- for my progressive rock band Headspace, for example, then, you know, it's not going to be CFG. It's, it's going to be, you know, in a kind of more complex sort of t- uh, tempos and time signatures and stuff like that. Whereas, I don't know, if you sit, if, I, if I just sat down at a piano, which is what I kind of did with this album, it kind of, it sort of fitted more naturally with just being on my own, being isolated and just with a piano and just and just writing and I think, you know, there were a couple of pieces that came out that, you know, weren't quite suitable, which I've kind of shelved for maybe working with Damien Wilson when I work with him and we do the Wilson Waitman albums. So a few kind of spin-offs from the recording process, but generally it was kind of, it was quite focused. It was just, you know, it was just being isolated and being on my own with the piano. When, when I recorded the album and mixed it, there was no, um, you know, we didn't put any reverb on, we didn't do anything, we didn't take any of the noises away from the pedal or, or anything like that from the piano. It was just recorded me, a nine-foot Steinway Model D grand piano in an auditorium, which was completely empty. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. And that comes more natural to you than you think writing more of like the stuff for Headspace? Well, it's not a, a, a case of it being more natural. It's just that it was, that's what seemed right for the okay. time. Uh, and I think you have to kind of, well, I can't be productive in, you know, recording six albums at the same time. It's, it's just, you know, I have to focus on one thing. And that's one of the reasons, again, why I haven't done this album for a while, because or I put it off so much, is because I needed the time to dedicate and just focus on that one thing. Because it's really difficult to try and, you know, if you're, say, writing a load of progressive rock stuff and writing a piano album and writing a an acoustic guitar album or whatever it's kind of you're torn in too many different directions i i personally can't kind of give everything in um you know to to one thing unless i'm just focusing on that one thing yeah well the the first single was called the winter palace and i gotta say adam that that song is so haunting and beautiful coming from an ozzy osbourne background of, of our love affair for ozzy that would have been awesome on one of his modern records because really that classical sound is really what fans are missing from the modern Aussie albums. Maybe you need to put a bug in his ear that when you do write with me and that we need some more of that classical stuff in there because you definitely poured it out for this track. <laughs> I'll, men- I'll mention that to him next time I speak to him. Yeah, on the, on the Scream album, which is the last album that, that I was involved with, with Ozzy and Kevin Cherko, Ozzy wanted a uh, a kind of classical piano interlude in one of the songs, and I can't for the life of me, I can't remember which of the songs. I think it was. I think it's I want it more. I want it more. That's right. And yeah. And and we recorded it in his his studio at the time was in in the basement of his house, and but his grand piano was upstairs in one of the other rooms. So Kevin had had uh, mic'd up the piano upstairs and. Uh, it was quite a surreal experience because I'd recorded loads of different versions of it just on a MIDI piano for Ozzy to hear. And he, he kept coming back and, and wanting things changed. You know, he had a very specific idea of, of what he wanted. You know, changed it multiple times and then recorded it at the piano. I remember there was just this little moment of, of me thinking, I'm sat here on Ozzy's piano in his house recording, you know, a kind of classical-esque 
middle-eight section right. on an Aussie record, I had to kind of pinch myself a little bit. It was a bit of a schoolboy moment of thinking, you know, from playing Paranoid in my school band, I'm, I'm sat here doing this. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think that's really overlooked about Aussie. You know, you hear a lot about what well, Aussie doesn't write and this and that. And we discussed that a lot on the show, how kind of bullshit that is, because, of course, the melodies are the key to any song. But one thing you do hear a lot from musicians like yourself who work with him is how he knows what he wants and he knows how to push you to get what he wants out of that. And that's a talent in itself. There's no question about that. Well, yeah, I mean, take Ozzy's input off of any album or any track and you've just got a track. You know, you've got a backing track of, of, you know, perhaps great music, but it's not going to it's not Ozzy until Ozzy's on it. And he's got such a kind of. You know, such an enthusiasm for, for stuff. He would, I remember he'd come down in the studio, he'd generally leave Kevin and I for a few hours in the morning and stuff, and he'd come down and hear what we're coming up with, point us in a, in a completely different direction, which would just throw everything. <laughs> and then we'd work on that for a bit, and he'd come back down, and he'd sing some melodies, and then he'd go back off and he'd listen and come back with some lyrics. And it was it was so, you know, that was the first experience I had writing with, with Ozzy. So, I, I mean, I was kind of not really quite sure what to expect, you know, how involved he was going to be. And I'm just, I'm just so grateful I had that experience because, you know, between Ozzy and Kevin Cherko, it taught me so much. Kevin was just a, a phenomenal producer. I think he's uh, very good, become a very good friend of mine after that experience. But he's, he's taught me so much, you know, just generally about approaching uh, writing and, and recording, even though, you know, I wasn't, 18 years old at the time you know I'd, I'd written and produced quite a lot of albums but he he was just such a, a professional and calming influence in the studio it was brilliant yeah that's <laughs> awesome um one thing i was gonna say dan correct me if i'm wrong but is adam the only keyboard player that ozzy's had that got credits for songwriting no i think um john sinclair got credited for, okay. um okay. And I, that's all i could really think of but very few so adam, very few when we look at, this, at the song listings and see that you helped participate on five songs for the screen session, that's actually really impressive. How did you come about getting involved in that album when, when really it was just you, Kevin, and Ozzy? I mean, I guess it was luck more than anything else because I certainly wasn't expecting to be involved. Kevin had done the Black Rain album, um, and uh, I think between that album and the next album, Zach had left and... Gus wasn't quite in the band, so there was a bit of a, a period of not quite sure what was going on in in that at, at that time. Um, uh, Kevin, I think, had been working on the album for quite some time, and I think he suggested to Ozzy that that I come in. I think I was in America anyway, and he just said, "Well, you know, should we get Adam over for a bit?" And, and that was kind of it. So, really, I've got Kevin to sort of thank for that. And um, and it was kind of a very much on. I just come in, you know, no stress. See what happens, and and that was kind of it, really. It just kind of all all seems to sort of fit together. As I say, I'm, you know, I'm eternally grateful for the opportunity and and the experience. And uh, you know, it's a very it was a very sort of magical time for me. And and I, I uh, yeah can't thank um, well any of them enough. Really, it was it was great. Kevin's also a wonderful drummer as well. A lot of people don't realize he played drums on Scream, and he is a fantastic drummer. He's an uh, awesome drummer, and he's yeah. also a really good guitar player. He's kind of frustratingly good at everything. <laughs> yeah. Yep. We know people like well, that. It's amazing. And you also play guitar. Did you contribute any of the, of the – I know you may not have recorded guitar parts, but did you help contribute with writing guitar parts and stuff also? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, on um, 
uh, again, excuse me for it being so long ago, I can't remember let, which. Uh, fear, let me run it down for you. You, you, you co-wrote on Let It Die, Digging yeah. Me Down, yeah. Fearless, I yeah. Want It More, I Love and, You All, and Hand of the Enemy, which was a bonus track. Okay, that's right. Yeah, so the, the majority of Let It Die, I was involved more with the kind of a, a few lyrics and a few melodies with Ozzy and stuff like that. It was kind of, that was quite a, a limited involvement, if I remember rightly, on that track. The others were more the guitar riffs that I came up with. And I recorded the, recorded the guitar riffs in the studio. And then when Gus came on board, he came in and played them all properly. That's awesome. <laughs> That's great. Digging Me Down, I think, is the strongest song off the record, actually, for me personally. Oh, I think it should have been the lead single. It's just got everything you want in an Ozzy song. A great riff, great melody, a great... I love how the middle eight is actually at the end of the song, very Mr. Crowley-like. Um, you know, the, you, big, the biggest issue I find with, with stuff... I mean, the pressure, if you, if you sit back and think about it, when somebody says you're involved with writing songs with Ozzy Osbourne, the pressure of trying to come up with something as good or even close to Bark at the Moon or any of those tunes or Mr. Crowley or it's, it, you know, if you stop and think about it, I think most people would probably turn the job down because, you know, they're classic songs that everybody knows. And I think that's part of the problem is when people often write with uh, artists like Ozzy that have such an immense back catalogue and, and such memorable songs, I think that's kind of a problem where people want to, you know, recreate that. And and you can't. That's the problem is you can't recreate Bark of the Moon. You know, you can't write a riff that's a bit similar that people aren't going to go, that sounds like Bark of the Moon. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a great point. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it, and, and I think that, that that's why sometimes that it's um it's a bit like working with a new artist. It is is kind of uh, almost easier because they haven't got that kind of pressure with them. You know, you can write with somebody that's, I mean, I've been writing with my daughter who's 16 and it's, you know, it's a fantastic kind of refreshing experience because there's no, there's nothing before. So whatever we're doing is kind of, is new. It's new for her, it's new for me. And it's kind of a whole different, you know, there's no pressure on it at all. Whereas, you know, as I say, I think with some of the more established artists, it's more difficult. I think that's a great point. And I think something that Ozzy's always done a really good job of is kind of staying modern and different. And I think Scream in particular is maybe his most modern sounding Ozzy album. So I think you're, you're spot on. I think one thing he's done a great job is tried not to live in his past so much and kind of lo always looked forward. And it might be the detriment to his fans, but I, I love that he does that. The thing is, I think if you're, you know, if you're a true fan of music and you're a true, a true fan of Aussie or, or whatever, any band, it's kind of, you have to go through all these processes with them. You know, you go, if, if you just like the odd song of U2 and you listen to it on the radio, maybe they've got a new album, you go, yeah, it's all right. But if you're kind of a true fan of, of music, you have to kind of take on board all the changes. And as you say, Aussie has to kind of morph with, with each album because otherwise he, I mean, if anyone's going to get slated for making an album that's the same as the last one, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be Aussie. People love knocking him. So I think it's it's great that he does work with these different producers and and just get different musicians. And you know, no one's. I often get asked, you know, don't you get, you know, don't you get upset that you're not not on the albums? I'm like, well, no, not at all. It's like, no, I'm not. You know, I'm, I didn't sign a contract 18 years ago saying. I must be on all albums. You know, it's it's a really weird thing to think. It's like, 
I really look forward to listening to new albums, you know, or new tracks or whatever. And and that's kind of that's all part of the process of being, you know, I'm lucky enough to be still here many years later playing live shows. So and anything else is definitely a bonus. Absolutely. And, you know, another thing you mentioned, you know, Dan and I, we have a bad problem with going online and reading like fan comments and stuff on blabbermouth.net and some of those websites. And the one thing that drives us completely bonkers is, oh, this album doesn't sound anything like Diary of a Madman. It's like, of course, it's like Diary of a Madman. It's, you know, almost 40 years ago. Like, you know, and I, I totally agree with what you're saying on that and, and see your point on that. You know, it must be infuriating for people that, you know, work on these albums that I, I kind of, I did read a lot of the comments on the screen and there was a, you know, there was a lot of negative comments but there are a lot of positive comments. I think, you, you know, you have to be, you know, you, if you're going to read anything, you've got to read both comments or you read nothing. And that's the, I think that's the, the stage. Ozzy, I'm pretty sure, doesn't bother reading any of them because it's just not going to be uh, productive, you know, and it's going to, he needs to be kind of focused on on what he's good at, which is making music. And, and I think for one of my kind of mistakes, I think, was reading all the comments. And, and one, I remember very drunken evening uh getting involved in a kind of sort of uh responding uh, twitter oh. argument with somebody i don't know why it's just human nature adam we can have 25 good ones and one bad one and we would respond to the bad one <laughs> you know that is exactly right exactly right but it's you know that's kind of all that's all part of it and, and people are allowed to sort of you know voice their, com- their comments and and that's fine as well but uh yeah, I've definitely learned not to respond to Twitter and uh, Instagram posts after a couple of beers. <laughs> so we actually we had Gus on about four weeks ago, and I think one of the big misses Ozzy had was following Scream Up with a new record with you, Gus, and with Kevin Churko, but having Gus kind of drive a lot of those rhythms, I, th- I thought it would have been, that would have been more of a throwback style record. I think Gus would have brought wonderful ideas to the table. Was there anything discussed at that time about maybe what the next step was going to be? Or was it just after Scream, you hit the no, tour? And- yeah, there was always tour. I mean, the, when we were on the tour, the, the Scream tour, which was 2010, 11, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, you know, there was always talk about, um, you know, going to a studio and just going back to the old school and just all in the room, that kind of thing. But the problem, I mean, the problem always with all these things it's kind of schedule and you know one tour rolls into the next and then you go to australia and then you go to south america and then it's and then there's kind of this you know this cycle by the end of it it's kind of there's something else planned ozzy's got a tv show to do or whatever else and i mean i think there could you know that could well have happened but in this existence and lifetime sadly it didn't which i agree it was a shame because it would have been nice to see how um how that would have panned out but you know unfortunately it wasn't he wasn't speaking. I mean, I love I love Gus a bit. I think he's a he's a phenomenal guitar player, and I think he's probably the only person I know who could have covered all the bases of all the eras of guitar playing, and bring his own sound in as well. It was really that's a that's a big ask for any guitar player to come in and you know do the Randy stuff, the Zach stuff, the Jakey Lee stuff, and and really pull it off and try in the middle of that mix to throw in some Gus G as well. It's pretty, it's a lot, it's a big ask, you know? Yeah, it's Absolutely. And that's something we discussed with Gus was, you know, we've been seeing Ozzy, I've seen him 22 times. I think Dan's seen him 25. 
we've seen him throughout the years, but there was no doubt that on that screen tour, you guys were a complete unit. That may be the best tour I've ever seen Ozzy on. And you could tell he was excited for the band. The band was excited. You guys truly jailed just nightly more and more. And Gus discussed that with us also, that he could feel that also. And he said that he felt like Ozzy was getting more excited and that he was always wanting to add songs to the set list and this and that. That truly was a formidable unit that I think could have written a, a really great album. So that, that was definitely a, a miss for sure. Yeah, I think, I, you know, there's always a kind of a, you change one person in a band and it changes the whole dynamic. It's kind of, it's been different and it's not been any better or worse in my opinion. You know, I, I, you know I've worked with obviously Mike Borden who's a fantastic drummer, an awesome drummer, um, and Tommy Clefitas, obviously both fantastic drummers, but bring a completely different vibe to the band. It's kind of a whole different thing. It doesn't make it, you know, I'm not saying one is better than the other, right. but it, it's just different and that's exciting that that change is exciting whatever happens and it, you know when zach came back um after gus had gone it was kind of another kind of exciting uh, exciting change you know it's it's just it's like anything like any it, it any change kind of adds a bit of excitement and what certainly with, with gus one of the things with there are a lot more songs we rehearsed and uh, i think at one point we'd rehearse 60 plus songs that we Ooh. could pretty much we could pull on in a rehearsal, you know, and we had a big whiteboard and all the boards, all the songs we rehearsed. So Ozzy could pretty much pick them and we'd play them, you know. It was great. That was that was a real kind of, that was that, that felt like we were working. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah that's awesome. And one thing Gus had told us was that Ozzy at one point wanted to do Diary of a Madman and Blizzard of Oz in their entirety and that you guys had worked those up also. That's right. Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah. There were some songs that I, I certainly, I mean, I'd love to have played. I'm trying to think of what the um, uh, Killer of Giants. I think we did actually do that a few times. We did yeah. play yep. the screen tour. Yeah, and when that, that was, I love playing that song. That was kind of, you know, quite slightly biased because there's quite a lot of keyboards in it. But right. Yeah. Ironically, the songs that I kind of probably love most are the ones that have uh, less keyboards and I get to talk, play a bit of guitar, which was, that was kind of a, that really was a kind of um, schoolboy dream moment playing, uh, you know, playing a bit of guitar along, alongside the guys. You know. Well, I was going to actually ask you about that. The one thing that stands you out aside from the rest is that you do play guitar also for Black Sabbath when they tour and for Ozzy. Uh, how did you go about pulling that off? Because you're the only one that's ever done that. And you know, I got to say, it sounds excellent. It does. But do you know, the weirdest thing was when Ozzy finished the tour and then Sabbath started again. So when I first started working with Sabbath, which was 2003, it was all keyboards and, you know, predominantly any, you know, musicians out there. It was kind of, I was pretty much doubling the guitar parts on a sort of distorted Fender Rhodes type sound or distorted kind of synth sound just to kind of beef things up when Tony was soloing. So it was, it was quite a kind of, you know, I just lock into playing the parts that Tony was playing. And then Tony asked me, again, this was 2004, I think. He said, can you play guitar? And I said, yeah, I play, play a bit of guitar. And he said, on Paranoid, can you just play rhythm guitar? You know, obviously, I was off stage in the tent. So I was kind of, yeah, of course. So I, I played um, just a bit of rhythm guitar in, uh, in Paranoid on, on that 2004 tour. Then when it came around to 2007, um, when the, the next Sabbath sort of tour was, I think it was 2007, the uh, Tony was like, "Can you play like I don't know, um, children? Uh, uh, God, 
I can't even think of this song. No, uh, Into the Void. Can you do the rhythm guitar in Into the Void? And I was like, yeah, of course, you know, play whatever, you know, whatever you want. I'll, I'll, I'll play whatever makes it sound sort of right, you know. And then, uh, and then when we went back out with Ozzy in kind of 2010 and 11 and stuff, uh, Tony came to see a show in Los Angeles somewhere. And I think it was the Gibson Amphitheater or might have been Hollywood Bowl. Um, but Tony, Tony then saw that I was playing um, guitar. And he said, I didn't realise you played so much guitar. He said, would you be happier if you were playing a bit more guitar through the songs that don't have keyboards in? And I said, I'd, I'd rather play whatever makes the song sound better. And if there's no keyboards, I would much rather play a bit of rhythm guitar to make it sound more authentic, more like the original. So when we then went back to working with Sabbath again in 2013, that was a period where in rehearsals, Tony would say, do you want to do this one on guitar? And that I would then start to play it on guitar. So by the end of those tours, I think I was only playing two songs on keyboards and triggering a few samples. The rest of it was just playing rhythm guitar, which wow. was all, for me, was all about just locking in with what Tony was playing and trying to match up with him um, not that Tony needs any beefing up in his guitar sound, but basically when he then solos, it doesn't sound like there's suddenly a guitar thrown in there. It sounds like it's it's all part of the same thing. And that's the most important thing for me was kind of trying to make it sound authentic. And Tony was great. You know, he was just, Tony doesn't, he just wanted to sound killer and, and massive. And that's, you know, that's kind of a, a lot of that is down to, um, obviously great price front of house engineer as well. He's kind of, you know, trying to keep me out of the way for most of it and put me in when he when he needs it. But, you know, for me in my in-ear monitors, all, all I had was kind of Tony very, you know, quite hard panned in one right ear and then my guitar panned quite hard in my left ear, geezer in the middle, Tommy there and Ozzy in the middle. And it was just a case of just trying to play as tight as possible to Tony. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's killer stuff. That's just great. Me and Danner, we're like captivated with these kind of stories, man. That's, yeah, that's it was awesome. great. That was a great story. <laughs> you know, I was going to say, Geezer, Geezer is amazing at filling space, like when I listen to 70s bootlegs and stuff. But Geezer and Bill in particular, you know, when Tony would go solo, they're one of the few bands that really didn't, the bottom didn't empty out. You know, you sometimes you go see a, a three-piece and the lead guitar player will solo and, and just that bottom end empties out. But Geezer does such a phenomenal job of filling that space. So even with you playing that minimalistic rhythm behind it, just it really filled it out beautiful. That was a great tour. Oh, like, do you know what? Do you know what? Back at the very first rehearsals of, for me with them in 2003 or 2004, whenever it was, it was in New York and I hadn't met them before. And Ozzy hadn't turned up for, he, he was coming like two weeks later or something. So it was a couple of weeks just with Bill, Tony, and Geezer. And I really it was it was so mad to try and play along with them because they were just they were such a unit and the three like Geezer's so busy but doesn't get in the way. Tony's, you know, so on it, and Bill has kind of got that slight jazz fusion-y rock drum thing going on. It was it was crazy, it shouldn't work, but it does work, if that makes any sense. You know, it's it's kind of and listening to it with in-ear monitors and then trying to play along was kind of a bit mad. I, was, I ended up having to pan everything quite extreme in my ears just so I could make sure I didn't get too in the way of every, what everyone was playing. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's true. And Bill has such a beautiful swing. I agree with you 
on his style of playing. He's he's one of a kind. One of the things as well about Bill, and it's not just Bill. I think a lot of a lot of musicians, you know, that a band is often the the sum of the parts as opposed to the you know how good individual musicians are. I think, and that goes with many many different bands. But one of the things I think that stands bands like Sabbath apart is that they were always playing to the edge of their ability, which made it exciting. Whereas, you know, nowadays you maybe have bands that are just, you know, phenomenal players and are kind of pulling back and, and playing within their comfort zones. Bands like Sabbath and, you know, Zeppelin and stuff like that. Jimmy Page, another good example. You know, he's not he's not Joe Satriani or Steve Vai, but when he plays, you know it's Jimmy Page and it just it's just on the edge of which gives it that extra excitement. Well, Bill Ward on the song Cornucopia on volume four, there's always been the word that they got so frustrated recording that song because Bill struggled to, to get his parts correct. But like you said, he was pushing himself to the edge to do something that was not easy for him or comfortable. He pushed it to, to a higher limit. Absolutely. You know, I, I think that's the kind of, that's what stands those albums apart from or maybe things that are kind of a little bit more contrived and, and predictable. You know, there was an element of unpredictability, which, you know, then also transposes into the live performance. It's like if you're in a kind of a, a band where it's, anything could happen and it, the excitement is kind of, you know, is there for the audience to feel as well. So how did um, the whole Jazz Sabbath phenomenon come around? <laughs> well, that I mean, that's been kind of in the process for quite a while, and it was... Originally, it was on a Sabbath tour, a Black Sabbath tour, I should add. We were in Berlin, and I'd gone out for uh, a drink with uh, the security guards at the time, who um, it was off duty, we'd gone for, for something to eat, had a beer, came back to the hotel. There was a piano in the corner of the bar, and uh, and I said, oh, I'll, I'll have a nightcap. And, and, he, and he sat down, and he said, I'll play some of the Sabbath songs on the piano. And the first thing I did was the, the, chord, the first opening chords to Iron Man, but with a kind of major seven kind of feel on the chords, which made it sound a bit jazzy. And then I um, proceeded to bore the shit out of him and play the entire set in a kind of jazz style, a drunken jazz style. And what I didn't realise at the time is uh, Tony Iommi was eating on the balcony outside, so he was listening as well, <laughs> but didn't, oh. didn't realise it was me playing the piano. So, uh, so that was the start of it. And I went to bed and I suddenly thought, wouldn't it be great if there was this kind of fictional pianist who believed that he'd written all the songs before Black Sabbath had written them? Um, and then I started developing this character called Milton Keynes, who was this kind of disgruntled pianist from the 60s who, um, as I say, thought, you know, was convinced that he'd written all the songs. Um, and then I sort of put off doing it because I was a bit frightened of making a balls up of it and, and it not being very good. So I kind of put it off for a few years, but concentrated more on writing the, the documentary that went with it on YouTube and getting, you know, getting people uh, involved that they, to, uh, to be in and, uh, and do little cameos. So, so by, by the time I sort of started the uh, recording of the documentary, I thought, well, I better, I better get the album done. And that was it, really. And once I started, once I once I did the first track, I kind of got my confidence, and I thought, actually, no, this is going to be all right. It's not going to be a, an absolute train wreck. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be good. So the music's really good, but the, the, I enjoyed the comedy side of making the film as well. And that was kind of, you know, it was great. And it was, and obviously, I got um, Sharon and Ozzy's blessing before I did it. I didn't want to do it and, and surprise everybody, but um, you know, it was it was a great. Uh, 
Yeah, it was a great thing. In fact, Giza said after he heard the album, he said, oh, let me know if you're doing any live shows. And he said, I'll pop along and play, play a track. Yeah, I'll kill it. Well, I got to tell you, Adam, I fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. When I first saw it pop up on the internet, <laughs> and it says British jazz band, jazz Sabbath says Sabbath, whatever, I fell for it. I was like, what the fuck is this? And I started... <laughs> Because you have the lawsuits with Led Zeppelin that's been going on and all, all these kinds of things. And I was like, oh, no, what is this? And I researched it, and it took me a minute to realize it was you and what I was really going on with it. That, I thought that was an excellent idea. Well, if you if you took you a minute, that's uh, that's pretty good. Guy. I did an interview, and I was about 15 minutes into an interview with a jazz, um, come, I can't remember if it was a radio or a magazine in New York. And it was about 10, 15 minutes in before they realized it was a joke. And, uh, oh. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest, that had to be interesting. It's fucking awkward, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, how hard was the process to pick what songs? Because really, so many other songs kind of lend themselves to jazz, since Tony and Bill and Geezer kind of have jazz backgrounds. But what was the process like picking those songs out? Do you know what? I all I did was sit down, and the ones that came easiest were the ones I did on that album because. There were a couple that I really wanted to do, but I, it was too. It felt too difficult to make them uh, not cheesy, and that was kind of for me. If they were cheesy, then they've got to go. It's, it's got to sound authentic, and that was kind of really the key to what tracks got chosen. So that was kind of for me the the kind of which tracks got in and which didn't make it. Do you care to tell us some of the ones that you tried that really didn't or did sound cheesy? So you kind of passed on them. Yeah, War Pigs. I just I just couldn't make that work. It, it it just didn't. And I tried, and I just kept going back to it. And I was just like, no, this is, it's best to just leave that one. You know, leave that as it was. I'll let them have that one. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> I gotta ask. You said Tony was on the balcony and heard you playing and didn't realize it was you. What did he say when he found out it was you? He said in the morning somebody was uh, somebody was playing the piano. Was that you? And I, and and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was well. I was just you know playing through some some tunes. And he was like, sounded sounded dreadful. Um, you know, in his kind of you know, joking way. Well, I assume he was joking. Maybe he wasn't. I don't know. Maybe he didn't careful, But Tony's got a, 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 a wicked sense of humour, so you never quite know what. The first time I spoke to Tony, in fact, 2003, he phoned me up and asked me if I could wear a white tuxedo and play on a white grand piano at the front of the stage during Ozfest. <laughs> so, at the time, I didn't really, I hadn't seen an Ozfest, and and I was like, oh, Tony, whatever, whatever you need, I'll do it. That's fine. And then uh, I saw a couple of videos of, of the kind of uh, the first stage at Ozfest, and, and I uh, I called Ozzy's office and just said, just to clarify, I will be killed if I wear a white tuxedo and I play a grand piano at the front <laughs> of Ozfest. And they didn't know anything about it, you know, because Tony winded me up. So. And that's awesome. awesome. I was yeah. going to ask how different the dynamic was touring with Sabbath versus touring with Ozzy Solo, but I, I, I can only imagine the, the gags that the guys are playing on you on Sabbath. It's, it's very different, but only really because with Ozzy's band, it's Ozzy's band. So he's kind of, you know, he's, he's such a, he's such a kind of all encompassing part of that. And, you know, he loves having us all around. If there's something kind of, you know, if there's a, a boxing match on telly or something then we'll all go and hang out in his hotel room and kind of we'll have dinner together and stuff whereas with sabbath everybody has kind of got 
you know, it's like having three Aussies. It's kind of everyone's got their own things going on. They've got their, you know, their own Aussie might have some TV stuff going on. Tony might be recording, doing something else. And he's got his family out staying with him and, and the same with Giza. So it's kind of it's a little bit more separate. And so that was kind of a that's a sort of different, a different environment. But every, you know, every tour is different, whichever band you're, you're playing with. It's, it's always a kind of a, a different, um, you know, a different kind of approach and you have to kind of you sort of find the the balance quite quickly of how sociable it is and how sometimes things aren't so sociable the be- i think the thing about being a musician is five percent knowing how you play your instrument and 95 percent knowing when to keep out of the way yeah that the notes you don't play yeah. right or as important as the notes you play i love that. exactly exactly yeah and you know even from a standpoint of just personalities i have a good friend of mine he's from my hometown his name is joey huffman and he's a keyboard player also and uh he's played you know since the 80s with a lot of different bands he's played with uh, mick jagger he's played with keith richards he's played with soul asylum matchbox 20 all these different bands and and i asked him i said man how is that hard he said you just got to stay professional all the time you know you, you can't fanboy out just because you're in a room with keith richards you know you got to keep a piece of fanboy out when keith leaves you know not yeah, I think that's that's absolutely true. You can't um, you can't let your kind of admiration for somebody get in the way of doing your job. But at the same time, you know, I don't think that's you know, with Sabbath, it was I had some fantastic times walking with Tony and and, and especially when Bill was back in the band, he used to like sort of walking and stuff most mornings. And it's kind of those periods where you're talking about the old days and and all that stuff. They love chatting about stuff, and and they don't have to be so kind of guarded about you know it being an interview and being taken the wrong way you know so it's, it's like it was like talking with your friends it was a, it was such a lovely experience and that's a kind of you know that's definitely something that i i got from from all those touring years with with the sabbath guys because they're they are such nice people and that's the kind of it, re, it reminds me a bit of you know blowing my dad's trumpet but my dad's kind of from that era as well where i've never met anybody that says you know my dad's an arsehole you know they they're all kind of you know, they all say, oh, he was so chatty and he was so, you know, approachable. And I think most of the musicians from that era, they kind of were like that. It was just a different time. And I think that's definitely the case with those guys. Well, you have to be so much more guarded now with the Internet and social media. Like you said a minute ago, you got into a back and forth with a fan on Twitter. I mean, everything's out there now. And I guess you just have to be more guarded with it. Yeah. And I don't think that's I don't really like that. And I think that's probably because I'm. I'm in between the new school and the old school. I've got kind of, you know, my all my experiences with Sabbath and people like Annie Lennox and the kind of older school and, and my dad, of course. That's sort of where my kind of heart comes from. Whereas the sort of more modern day stuff, the, the sort of bands, if I'm working with younger bands and stuff, you kind of, it's more like a business rather than the music first, if that makes sense. And it's kind of, that's a difficult one for me. And it's, you know, you, you'd get fired. If you said the wrong thing on Twitter, if you're working with, you know, Justin Bieber, you know, you'll be fired straight away. Whereas back, I mean, you imagine being in Justin Bieber's band and throwing a telly out the window. You know, I think Ozzy, Ozzy would probably buy me dinner. <laughs> yeah, definitely a different generation for sure. Yeah. Do you have much recollection when uh, your dad played with Ozzy on the Osmosis record? Back in 1995, I know he came back and added keyboards for Ozzy on that record. Oh, do you know what? I do vaguely remember it, but there, there was only because my dad was living on the Isle of Man at the time, and I was 
I was recording at my dad's studio. So I was kind of in and out of his office, just being nosy, looking around. And I remember seeing a fax come through. This is how long ago it was, you can date it by that. Um, and there was a fax come, that came through with some details about the recording and stuff like that. And I remember seeing it going, oh, that's cool. He's going to play on that. And then I remember there was another, my dad got Ozzy involved and, and singing on a track on an album he did called uh, Return to the Centre of the Earth, which was kind of follow-up to Journey to the Centre of the Earth that my dad did in, in 74, I think, or 73. Um, and then Ozzy sang on that one, which was in the 90s as well, I think. It might have been early 2000s. But I remember that kind of backward, back and forward as well, where, um, you know, there were, there were, Ozzy was doing it in LA. And I just, I just remember, obviously, you know, I hadn't met Ozzy at that time, but I just remember thinking, fucking hell, that's awesome. You know, there's this kind of Ozzy's playing on my dad's stuff. My dad was play, played on Ozzy's stuff. And obviously back in the, back in the day with the kind of, um, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath album as well, that kind of whole situation. Actually, just a side story, when we recorded Scream uh, at Ozzy's studio, Ozzy showed me the old ARP 2400, I think it was, this old synth keyboard, and it had a Black Sabbath sticker on the side. And, and Ozzy said, he said, last time we used this was on Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, but you, your dad played it. So I said to Kevin, we have got to get this on the album. So we recorded, the thing was absolutely had it he was beaten to pieces but we did manage to get a bit of a sound out of it so that somewhere on the album is a little bit of that keyboard even though you probably wouldn't pick it out but we managed to get it on there somewhere that's, that's awesome. awesome and that's i love cool the song ozzy sang for your dad buried alive it's fantastic oh, Great song. i was going to ask you also when we were speaking with Gus g he mentioned that the working title for scream or let me hear you scream was superman is dead do you recall any more of those working titles for some of those songs? We always find that kind of interesting, just the, the progress of building the song. Do you remember any of those working titles of those before before they got finalized? I remember that the track titles changed almost on a daily basis. So I could probably I'd probably have to dig out an old hard drive and try and find some of the stuff, some of the tracks with it, because they'd all be different. Uh, they generally, I mean, when, when we were working on them, they, they tended to just have dates, you know, so that you knew which track it was. You know, it was just a number and then a date, so you kind of chronologically where they were sort of uh, where they were sort of sat. But it, they changed so much. But now Superman is dead. That that does ring a bell. I remember one of the tracks being that. Um, uh, other than that, I can't remember. It's such a long time ago. Well, if you want to dig the tracks out, send them to Dan and I. We'll gladly listen over. <laughs> yeah, right? That'd be awesome. And peruse them for the titles. It's not, it's not okay, a problem. I'll do that. I'll do that. Did you guys demo all those songs off screen first, or was it just when the ideas were coming, you were recording the record? Well, to begin with, I was back, I was in England before I was then over in LA. So I was, Kevin would send me some stuff, or I'd send him some ideas. Um, I mean, the, the track, the last track, I Love You All, was I wrote that on one of the Aussie tours on a bus. I mean, years before it was, it was I just had a nickname for it called the Boston Sprangler because we were on our way to Boston. The guitar line is a bit like a sprangly uh, ding, 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 ding. So I just named it on my iTunes as like the Boston Sprangler. And then when we were going, we were, it was the last day for me in the studio and Kevin say, said, I really want to do this kind of track. And Ozzy's got these lyrics for, you know, kind of what he would say when when he finished uh, a show and he says, I love you all. And he kind of had those ideas. 
So I played it to Kevin and he said, that's it, grab a guitar. So I grabbed the guitar and then that was the kind of, um, that was that little idea that, that turned into that song. There was actually a, low, a, a whole different section to it, but um, Kevin and Ozzy were like, no, keep it short. Just, we just want it to be kind of this little bookmark for the end of the, end of the album. So um, yeah, that was pretty cool. Well, there you go. You just did it. Now we want the full damn song of I Love You All because right. now you know there's another <laughs> section. I, I, I really will need to dig out the, the hard drive for that add, one. Add that to the list, Dan. Add that to the yes, list. Yes, that's for sure. <laughs> Adam, thank you so much. We're super excited for your new solo album that's coming out. It comes out November 12th, A Handful of a Memories. A Handful of Memories. It's. Yeah. Uh, I'll do a quick pitch for it now. It's, it's yeah. basically a load of places that I've been to that have sort of stuck in my um, stuck in my mind and have sort of, I've got very fond memories of. And it's kind of each piece is inspired by the place I've been. And it's, it's, it's kind of modern classical piano. And I think um, hopefully it's something that even the metalheads that are into into Aussie might might like to stick on to kind of, you know, relax to after a hard day, uh, hard day out. I was going to ask where the song titles came from. And, you know, you beat me to the punch, which is great because I know it's always difficult naming an instrumental piece versus, you know, taking a hook from a song. So it's kind of interesting how your song titles came yeah, about. I mean, there's one song, one song called uh, Sunrise in L.A., which is kind of self-explanatory, really, really. But the the kind of the, there's a little write up with each piece as well in the album that, um, you know, certainly with that song, when I first started working with Ozzy, I was obviously a lot younger. And um, let's say I was kind of a bit more... Um, a bit more keen to see the nightlife of LA than I am nowadays. Um, so I saw a lot of sunrises on my way home to the hotel. But uh, you know, nowadays it's a bit more. I'm more likely to see the sunrises when I go out running around Runyon Canyon or somewhere. Adam, I gotta say, man, you're a complete gentleman. I had the pleasure of meeting you on the 13 tour in Indianapolis, Indiana. Actually, they call it Noblesville. And you came out and spoke, to, and spoke to my wife and I for about 20 minutes, and you brought me some guitar picks, you brought me some geezer's picks. Yeah. You said you looked for Tony's picks, but there weren't any laying around for you to grab for me. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I remember. I remember. The, and that's always, the funniest thing is with geezer's guitar picks, obviously, because he plays with his he plays with his fingers, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't yeah. use it, but he still has the picks, which I think is the coolest thing ever. It's like, you know, I should have my own drumsticks or something. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but man, you were so great with me that day and you really took what was already an awesome day. I had front row seats. I got to meet Ozzy. I met Sh actually meeting you led me to meet Sharon because when I was backstage waiting on you, Sharon came out. Ah. So, I mean, you made that day from going from a 10 out of 10 to a 12 out of 10. And I can't <laughs> thank you enough for that, man. And you were excellent. You talked to me for a long time and you're just such a nice guy. And, you know, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. And uh, we can't wait for fans to hear this episode. Man, listen, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, uh, and what we do this every week, is that how this works? <laughs> yes, I'm down. <laughs> We're down. We, we have a new co-host. That's right. <laughs> you are welcome on any time, Adam. And best of luck with the record. What do you have brewing right now? Are you working on your next project yet? Well, just at the moment, I'm trying to... I, I have just finished a new project, but I'll, I'll have to talk to you about that early next year. Okay. Um, which uh, is uh, yeah, it could well be the the uh, a, a nicely related story. So let's speak early next year about that. But uh, other than that, I'm, I'm starting to get um, get things ready for a tour with Damien Wilson, who's uh, a singer that we do some albums together, sort of every eighteen months or so. We've got a European tour coming up, but um, as you well know, travel is kind of somewhat difficult at the minute. So we're just trying to work out 
the logistics of, uh, of doing what otherwise would be a very simple tour um, is now turning into 10 days quarantining in various countries. So it's, uh, it's a bit of an administration nightmare at the minute. But I'm working with a guy called Tony Hadley as well at the moment. He was a singer in a, uh, an 80s band called Spandau Ballet. I'm not sure if you, you guys are familiar with that kind of... Uh, sort I of am for sure. True is a great song. Oh, Beautiful. True and Gold. Yeah, yeah great. Classic, classic tunes. Um, so I've been playing a lot of festivals with him over the last sort of, sort of eight weeks, which has been really nice to finally get out and, and play some shows. So uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, see what uh, I think he's got a few more shows this year and, and we just see what happens next year. I mean, it's just so unknown for everybody. It's kind of fingers crossed. Everything sort of kicks back up again soon. I know that Zach said that I, and I don't know how this is going to happen, but I just read an article that Zach said he's going to start practicing with Ozzy again in January. Have you mm. heard anything about that? Well, I mean, we've got the we've got European dates, so I mean, that's the, I would think that's the rehearsal period before those start. But it's I think it's a case of if events are allowed to happen and it's logistically possible, we you know everybody just wants to start playing again. You know, Ozzy's right. desperate to get back on stage, as we you know as we all are, and uh, we you know I guess we just have to see what what the, the you know the legislation is, what the kind of international travel stuff is, because not, this isn't just relating to Aussie tours or whatever else. But, for example, I'm, I'm going to do shows with Damien Wilson in um, Belgium, Germany and Holland. So at the moment, the UK is on a red list for Holland, which means I've got to quarantine for 10 days in Holland before the show starts, which means I can't do the Belgian shows because the Belgian show is four days before the Dutch show. So if you imagine the logistics of yeah, trying to move, you know, and, and it's just, there's only a few of us with Damien, but imagine, you know, like, you two or Aussie or whoever trying to get around and organizing a tour it's just so complicated but you know we're all just desperate to get back playing so um as soon as we can we we certainly will be for sure man perfect you're the thank best. you so much you're the best no best of luck with the record and the tour adam cheers guys thanks a lot see you soon see ya take care bye, bye. bye. What I fucking tell you? Is he not the best? Dude, that was fucking awesome. Is he not the fucking best, <laughs> yeah, man? that was awesome. Yeah. Like, Definitely. I would... Dude, there's a reason Ozzy loved that Scream lineup so much. They're fucking good dudes, man. They are good dudes, and they They're, all are respectful. You know what I mean? All they don't have dudes. egos. Yes, there's no egos in that group at yes. all. And clearly Ozzy loves Tommy. He keeps him around yes. for every two... I mean... And I bet she's just like these two. I'd love to get a hold of them fucking demo tapes she's got. Right. That was, that was <laughs> amazing. <laughs>